Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We, we, we praise you for who you are. Father, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that we see as, as, as your character was revealed in the way that you redeemed Israel, Lord, out of Egypt, and you called them to be your people, Lord, that, Lord, that there are distinctions, there are differences, Lord, with your people, the church, but who you are, your character, your saving ways, your worthiness to be worshipped and cherished is, 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 is not changed at all. And so, Father, we pray that, that we, would, we would see that, that we'd grasp that, that, that as we study these things of what you would call us to remember the gospel, Lord, as we would visibly see the gospel in front of us, we'd visibly taste the gospel as we partake in communion, as we think about the Lord's Supper, that you'd help us then to be, to, to be refocused upon who you are and what you've done, that you would be glorified in our discussion today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we're talking about the church. That's what we've been talking about in our unit here. Morning. Um, we're talking about the church. We talked about what is the church. The church is a place, not a pe- or people, not a place. Oh, my goodness. A people, not a place. Uh, it's, a, it's not just any people. It's a regenerate people. And it's not just isolated individuals, but it's an assembled people. The, the church is the idea of the word. Is that it means an assembly. Um, so we talked about really what, what marks out the church. And there are two historical marks of the church. What we also see as biblical, um, as we're coming right out of Peter's confession in, in Matthew 16. And that is having the right confession of the gospel and the right confessors of the gospel. Those confessors are marked out. So we talked about the right confession of the gospel, which is the right preaching of God's word. And then we're talking now about what marks out the confessors of the gospel. What is it that, that visibly is the distinguishing marks of those, um, who are those right confessors? And we see that in the New Testament, it is from two ordinances. It's baptism is the initial you know, mark um, of that first ordinance. And then the Lord's Supper is the continual um, offering of that mark through the Lord's Supper. So baptism, Lord's Supper. We looked at baptism and this idea of the... So first of all, ordinances are things that are just ordained or commanded by Jesus Christ. That's, that's a fancy word for things that Jesus commanded us to do as the church. Uh, we looked at baptism, that it was commanded to both the church and to people, and they respond to, to Christ. We talked about the right mode of uh, uh, baptism as immersion. That's the biblical picture. Everyone agrees on that, um, that that's how, the bibl- how it's practiced in biblical times. Uh, we talked about the meaning of baptism, that, that even though that, that might be in the mode in biblical times, we still don't change that mode because that mode is tied to the meaning, and the meaning of baptism is being united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, Right, his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a visible public expression of my faith of being united with Christ. It's not salvific. It doesn't save us. You, you can be saved and not be baptized. But it is the, the first external symbol of an internal faith. Right? How, do we, how do we display externally what God has done internally? Well, the first way that the New Testament describes is through baptism. Um, and then we say, who should be baptized? And we said that there's debates with our, our Pado Baptist brothers and sisters, those who practice infant baptism. But we looked in the New Testament that those who are baptized in the New Testament are those who repented and believed. That we see that the meaning of baptism in the New Testament is identified with belief, uh, being united with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. That's a, that's a picture of belief. And so we looked at baptism. Now this week, we're going to look at the second ordinance God left to the church. That's the Lord's Supper. Um, if you want to learn more on this, I'll recommend two books. Uh, one that's simple and one that's a little bit, I wouldn't say hard, it's just a little bit more, a little bit more in depth. Uh, if you want a real simple primer and yet it's so good, um, 
is Bobby Jameson wrote just a little, little church book uh, in this church basic series called Understanding the Lord's Supper. And I think he just, he just lays out very simply. In fact, I, I even drew some of, from some of his arguments because I think just how he's able to put things so simply is just really well done and does a great exegetical job as well, especially in 1 Corinthians. That's a really neat thing. He has a larger book that I really enjoyed that I read several years ago. It's called Going Public. And that's a, that deals with the issues of uh, all the issues that we've been talking about, baptism, and the Lord's Supper and membership in the church. So it kind of looks at these aspects of what is it the, the marking out of God's people as the church. And I think that is excellent as well. That's a little bit bigger. Uh, Bobby Jameson. And it's a J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N. So he, uh, he, he's uh, uh, an excellent resource um, on, on these issues. But here's what I want to do. I want to, we're going to look at this. There are two sections of scripture in general that really focus on the Lord's Supper. The, the first is the Gospels, right? When we look at the Last Supper as Jesus is instituting this. And then in Luke, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So we're, we're going to look this, to this morning and I want to look at the context of the Gospels. And, and, and I want to start with, instead of, before we get to theology, and, and some people, and I like Jameson because he doesn't do this. Is that instead of jumping to, here's a definition of the Lord's Supper. I, I really want to start, let's look at the Lord's Supper in the Bible. Then let's pull out of that our theological definition and look at some, some, some issues there that are, that are left over. But I want to first look at, at this morning, the, 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 the descriptions in Matthew and Mark and Luke. John, John actually doesn't have a full description. He has the, uh, actually the, um, the upper room discourse instead, which is an interesting, a whole other interesting issue. But I, I want to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, look at the context of that, and what does that inform us about our thinking and our theology about the Lord's Supper? Then next week, I want to spend some time in 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians has two, both in chapter 10 and chapter 11, really in-depth discussions that involve the Lord's Supper. And so, and, and then how should that inform our theology? Then we're going to, then we'll put a definition together and we'll, then we'll tie up some odds and ends as far as some different questions um, and different issues that, that, that may not be resolved um, as easily from those two passages. So that's kind of the plan. Um, and and if, if there's questions, of course, feel free to, to ask throughout. But let's look at um, the context. So let's look at, uh, before we go backwards, let's, let's start in Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're going to read those in a little bit. They all have a, a similar, um, similar, very similar account of what happened the night of Jesus' betrayal. And we're going to, just, just to get us starting, we're going to take a look at Luke. And what I want to do before looking at the actual context of the word that Jesus said, or actually, sorry, the actual content of the word Jesus says, we're going to look at that in a little bit. But I want to look at the context of what, what was the context of Jesus saying these words, right? It wasn't in a vacuum. It's not just, you know, the scene starts and Jesus is just like, here we go. We're going to eat to do the Lord, you know, last supper. No, there's a context that's important to what's going on. In fact, if you look at Luke 22, which is where the, the, we find the last supper, then we see the institution of the last supper starts there in verse 14. You guys see that? In fact, the ESV even, um, Labels it institution of the Lord's Supper. So there you go. Um, but it's interesting, and I, and I know I, ma- I made you turn here to turn somewhere else, but it's, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but I want you to see the context. Back up and, and look at verse 7. And I, want, I just want to read 7 through 13. What's the context of what's going on when Jesus institutes the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper here? Thank you, Dave. Yes. Uh, Luke 22. Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread. 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So Dave's right that this, the context of what's going on here is that this is the, is, 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 this happens, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and institution of the Lord's Supper happens in the context of them as Jews celebrating the Passover meal. And here's what I would say. I would say, we, I think we can understand the Lord's Supper outside that context, but we can't understand it sufficiently. We don't understand it fully without that Passover context. So let's go back. Uh, if you want to, we're going to come back to Luke 22 if you really want to mark it. But uh, we're going we're gonna to go back to Exodus 12. And just consider some things, how the Passover sets, sets the stage. I was going to say it's at the table, but that's really mixing metaphors, isn't it? Um, how the Passover really sets the stage for the Lord's Supper. Let's consider that. So as you're turning to Exodus 12, let's just do a, a little Sunday school reminder about what's going on with the Passover. So the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, right? They were oppressed by Pharaoh. Um, not at first, but, but eventually that uh, new pharaohs came that did not remember Joseph and his kindness to Egypt, right? And so God raised up Moses to deliver them, right? Let my people go, right? Um, and, but Pharaoh, he wouldn't let them go, so God sent plagues, right? And the final plague was, was what, Annika? What was the final plague on Egypt? Yeah. There you go. The, it was the death of the firstborn, right? The death of the firstborn in Egypt. And if you think contextually that, if, that all this started is because God told Pharaoh to let my firstborn son, right, Israel go. Pharaoh wouldn't let Israel, God's firstborn son, go. And so Pharaoh, the, you see this, this final plague. And that takes us to Exodus 12. Um, we're not going to read verses one through six. I'll sum them here. Is that where each household is to take an unblemished lamb, and to sacrifice it. And, and as we're going to see, that's a picture as a substitute, right? And, and I'm jumping ahead, but just to get our context, why, why should the Egyptians receive uh, punishment for their sin and the Israelites not? Is it because the Egyptians were sinners and the Israelites were not sinners? No, right? That even from the beginning, there's this aspect of, it's not that God's people don't deserve God's wrath. It's not that God's people are not sinners, but God's people have this substitute in their place. You see this from the very beginning here in Exodus. But I, I go all the way back to the garden, back to Adam and Eve and the, the death of, of animals having to make skins, uh, uh, clothes of animal skins. But look at then verse, starting in verse 7. Let me read 7 through 13, where Moses tells uh, the, the, the children of Israel, uh, or God speaking through Moses. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Herbs They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, for it's Yahweh's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they, they mark the, the houses, the blood of the lamb. They're marked out that this lamb is, is, is covering their house and they eat the meal. How? How are they eating the meal? In haste, right? Is, is they get ready for the exodus. They're ready that this is a sign that the exodus, it's time to leave, right? Um, and the significance then in verses 11 and 12 of that blood is that the judgment of God passes over them because the lamb, the death of the lamb provides their deliverance, their salvation. Again, it's not that they don't deserve judgment, but the lamb died in their place. It covered them. So the judgment of God passes over them. Then in verses 14 through 27, God commanded his people, not just there in, in Egypt, but for all generations to celebrate this Passover meal as a yearly remembrance. So every year, and this is what Jesus and the disciples are doing. Every year you clean out the yeast because you're not, uh, supposed to have no leaven. You slaughter the animal. You eat with unleavened bread and the bitter herbs is a reminder of God's deliverance for the nation. And look at an interesting context here. Look at verses 26 and 27 down there. If you keep going. 26 says that when they do this as a nation... There's, there's a particular context, verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our, our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. So it's interesting that this, this was celebrated to mark out the nation of Israel and was practiced by what type of groups within the nation? Families. This was a family practice, right? So this marked out the family and this marked out the nation, right? This is where the family, this is as a family devoting themselves to Yahweh and it also marks out the nation of who is part of the people of God. And then it's interesting that as you talk about marking out the nation, look down at verse 43. 43. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it. No foreigner shall eat of it. Only Israel was allowed to celebrate the Passover. Unless, verse 48, unless uh, they've been circumcised and they, they are publicly identifying with Israel, no foreigner was allowed to celebrate the Passover. Because the Passover marked out the identity of Israel. It marked out the identity of those who God had rescued and redeemed to be Yahweh's people from slavery in Egypt. So that's the context of Exodus 12. That's where this idea of Passover starts, is this remembrance of what God has done and a future remembrance that marks out the people of God. You guys, you guys tracking with that? Yeah? Okay. Then let's think throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the Psalms, especially the prophets, they start using this Exodus imagery. If you think about it, if you think about the, the Old Testament, it's like the, the first five books of the Bible are, are, are obviously for the Jews are foundational. And then you look at the, the writings, the Psal, especially the Psalms or the writings, they're actually like commentaries that focus on what God has done in, the, in the, the first five books, God continues to do and will continue to do. And that's what the prophets are doing as well. If you notice how much of the prophets are citing uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's this focus of this, is, this, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has done these things, continues to call us 
to the same relationship with him according to the same standards, and he's going to work in the same saving way. And, and there's this exp- expectation of a new exodus. So there's the, the first exodus with a Passover meal, and they celebrate this in remembrance, and the prophets start talking about there's a new exodus that's coming. So Israel disobeyed Yahweh, right? They were sent out of the land, this time not to Egypt, but to where? To Babylon, right? And so then the prophets started using this Old Testament Exodus imagery, saying there's going to be almost like coming out of Egypt, but this time they're going to be restored to the land, they're going to be restored to Yahweh out of Babylon. But it's interesting that when the, when the people came back with Ezra, there was a problem that God didn't fulfill all those promises. So when you start reading, if you went to the men's breakfast yesterday, uh, Lee was talking about um, extra-biblical literature, literature outside the Bible. When you start to read that literature, you start to, to read how Israel was say, writing in terms of, yes, we're back in the land, but we're still waiting for God to fulfill his promises. We're still waiting for this, in a way, Messiah. Now, the Messiah is very different. If you start reading that extra-biblical literature, you understand why they want a certain type of Messiah. When you read the Maccabees, they want a, a Messiah like, like the Maccabees, who are going to come and go and kill, kill non-Jews. Right? That's who they want. You read the prayer of Manasseh. They want a Messiah who's going to come and deliver Israel and slaughter all the Gentiles. All you guys, the Messiah is going to kill y'all. That, that's, what, that's the Messiah the Jews were expecting, right? Um, and, 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 but, they're wait, they, 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 but it comes to this heart of, it's fulfilled, but we're back in the land, but the new Exodus hasn't really happened yet. And it's interesting, then you pick up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in this new Exodus imagery of a voice calling out in the wilderness, right? Make way of the Lord. And, and these pictures of, um, you know, John t- speaking of Jesus, behold, you know, the Lamb of God, you know, um, um, <laughs> And so you're, so you're looking at these imageries. But just as an example, I turn to Hosea of this, of this new Exodus imagery where there's this hope of what God did in the Exodus is what God's going to do again in a new Exodus. Again, you, you can't Google new Exodus or Bible Gateway new Exodus, but it's, it's the imagery of describing this Exodus-like event that they're waiting for again. So Hosea... They're waiting that the prophets are speaking about this idea of, of out of Babylon, but the prophets speak that when, when people come out of Babylon, there's going to be this restoration, not only physically, but spiritually of the people of Israel. And, and I would, I differ when, when, when Lee said yesterday that there, that Ezra, I understand that, that the Jews would believe that Ezra, you know, reinstituted spiritual Israel, but, but you look at that within first century BC, you know, or in AD, that there was this hope that, no, it wasn't. You know, that, that you look at the Maccabees and you look at the, the Hasmonean dynasty and you look then at the, the corruption of the high priesthood and these are the things that caused the Essenes to, to, to leave and, and disassociate from Judaism and the Pharisees as they're, they're fighting against the royal, you know, the, this royal priest and the Sadducees. There's a, they're saying that there's a corruptness spiritually going on there and they're waiting for, in a way, a spiritual exodus. They're waiting for really this idea, this new, this, this new covenant, right? As Jeremiah would talk about this, Ezekiel taking on a heart of stone, putting on a heart of flesh type type of deal. And so, yeah. But if you look at it, um, the, so just an example of this language, and, and you'll, you, this may sound familiar to you if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, Hosea eleven one. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away and they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. 
So this is quoted in Matthew. Matthew quotes this about Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Remember, Jesus went as a refugee to Egypt to flee Herod, and then you know comes back, and, and Matthew says, to fulfill, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, let me ask you about this. Is, is Matthew, when he talks about son, in the context, primarily in the context, talking about Jesus here? Who is the son in verse one? Israel. Israel. Right? It goes back, and, and that's back to the Exodus, right? Yeah. You shall let my, my people Israel go, for they are my firstborn son. Right? And he called Israel, and, and, and even, you know, this aspect of, well, this son that he called went away and, and sacrificed the Baals. So it's definitely talking about Israel, right? So we're seeing that it's picturing the Exodus, but Hosea is looking backwards in order to look forward. You see what I'm saying? He's looking backwards and saying, God, out of Egypt, called his son Israel. And he's writing here as he's looking forward towards the exile. And he's going to talk about that there's this punishment of God that's coming. And he's looking forward to God is going to be doing the same delivering work. And Matthew picks up on that, right? And Matthew picks up on saying that in the same way that this, that, that to fulfill what Hosea is, is saying is that that new work of God bringing his son out of Israel or his son out of Egypt is fulfilled in Christ. Not just literally the, the, the coming from Egypt to Israel, but all of the hopes of the nation of Israel resting on Jesus Christ as their, you could say, covenant head possibly, or as their representative as their Messiah is, is the one who's going to be standing in the place um, is, is, is for Israel and his, in his life, death, and resurrection. And, and so, so, so Hosea is looking backwards to look forwards, and Matthew is interpreting that right in context, saying everything what Hosea was talking about is being fulfilled in Jesus. And so, um, so, 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 but that's what I'm saying. This, this new exodus all is being pointed towards that, that this new type of exodus, this new type of Passover event is going to be all fulfilled in, in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the context of what's going on here as we enter the Lord's Supper. Let me stop there. Questions, comments, confusions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is the fulfillment, but if Christ is going to bring out his people mm-hmm. and have this actual salvation, mm-hmm. instead of just salvation from slavery to Egypt, it's the salvation from slavery to sin and mm-hmm. uh, new heart. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, preposition, preposition could be interchanged as well. I mean, but I'd say that's the point, though. Yeah, it's, it's that in and through what, what God is doing redemptively through Jesus is the fulfillment of what Hosea was pointing to. Yeah, yeah. But the Jews misunderstood it, right? The vast majority, yeah. They were looking for, uh, yeah, not just a king. They were looking for a militaristic, I, I would say, king. Yes. They're looking for a certain type of Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, I would say in, 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 a, in a vast way, yeah, that, um, that there was a, a, a misunderstanding there. Yeah. Other questions? All right. So that's the context as we look into this, the, the, the Lord's Supper. Now let's look back. Um, let's go back to Luke. 
and um, it's very similar in Matthew and Mark. I'm gonna I'm gonna cite from there on a couple different points. Um, yes. Yeah. Things are terrible in this world, we say. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. But we're saying we want him to come to get us out of this mess. The Jews wanted a savior, a king, a military, political leader, save them. They really didn't want salvation. And we really aren't looking forward to heaven when we say that. We're just looking selfishly hmm. to protect ourselves from. Yeah, it depends on the heart. Right, but I think you look at the the faithful. There's faithful Jews. I think you look at the beginning of Luke. Right, if you look at Anna and you look at uh, who's the other who's the other guy at the temple, huh? Simeon. Right, there was a, a desire of of this this final deliverance. There there was this desire, but they're held up as righteous examples. I I, I would maybe maybe the closer illustration is this idea and, and whether you are are um, whether either political party is to say, come Lord Jesus, and, and what's going to be fixed is if we get the right political system in, if we get the right president, if we get the right Congress, if we get the right um, uh, justices. Not that, that, that we don't, shouldn't be faithful stewards. We should. But if the idea is that that's the way that Jesus is going to come and make things right. You, know, you understand? I, I might say that, maybe, not the perfect analogy, but I might say that that might be the closer analogy. Because the idea of come, Lord Jesus, and fulfill your promises. Different than having him come and protect us from yeah. politicians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so I, I think, um, but a lot of, I think part of it you're touched on there, and I would say it's, it's the heart, right? If your heart is just, you know, and, and you get, get, back, get back to John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. If your hope of Jesus coming and your hope of heaven is I get to be in a place with no sin and all the stuff I like and all the people I like and all, you know, all this goodness and has nothing to do with the presence of God. It has nothing to do with, with being with the Savior. He's, he would say, that's not heaven. And much more, that's not a regenerate desire. God doesn't save us that we would cherish something above God. This is to, not perfectly, but to somewhat quote uh, John Piper. God does not save us to cherish something above, above God, including the blessings of heaven. God saves us that, that we would cherish and love the, the God who is God and who saved us, that Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. So, so that, that maybe that's another, if, if my, my hope of come Lord Jesus is just so that I can escape this world and be in a place with a bunch of people I like, then, then, yeah, I'd say that you're mistaken of, of what the hope is. And the hope is, in, in, in our new covenant hope, is, is this, this aspect of the fulfillment of um, being with God. I mean, you look at even those, those Old Testament pictures. It's, it's not just that the lion was going to lay down with the lamb and the child play and the, the, the viper's nest, right? It's that the knowledge of the, the Lord would cover the earth as the water covers the seas, right? That's how it ends. That's the picture. What, what is it that makes all this as it is? What is it that makes paradise paradise? It is that perfect fellowship with God as Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's a restoration of that relationship perfectly forever. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's look at Luke 22 and let's think through now just, uh, that's, that was the, the, the picture of the old, the first Exodus. Now let's think of this context of the new Exodus. What's Jesus saying here in the context is he's using this Exodus context in, in instituting the Lord's Supper. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. Luke twenty-two, fourteen 14 and 15. 
And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so he's eagerly waiting to celebrate this Passover. Interesting. It's, it's reading a little bit that, that's not there, but it's just saying, if you look at, again, the Old Testament context, that, that it's the father teaching the children of what things mean. What, is, what does the symbolism mean? And he's real, it's this idea that he's instituting really this new family, which Jesus has been doing throughout his gospel. Who is my mother and sister and brothers? He says, obey the word of God. And, and, and Jameson, I like in his book, he says, by celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus turns his friends into family. Jesus saying is his family are those who receive this sacrifice that he's about to give. And then look at verses 16 uh, from there until 20. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so this, this must have been kind of surprising for the disciples. Think about a Jewish disciple who from the, the childhood, when you celebrate Passover, what is said by the head of the house? Well, what is said is, this is the lamb. And this is what the lamb symbolizes. This is the unleavened bread. And this is what the unleavened bread symbolizes. This is the herbs. And this is what the herbs symbolize. And Jesus gets up to do the, the Passover teaching, and that's not what he does, right? That's not the meaning that is coming from this meal, right? He's, Jesus is, is taking the meaning of the Passover, and he's reconstituting it to, to not look backwards to what, he, what, what happened in the Exodus, but saying that this is picturing what he's about to do at the cross. This Passover is about me, my body, right? The blood of the new covenant, as Matthew says, in my body blood, right? His, his, the bread is broken, so his body would be broken. There's no mention about anything about the necessary or meaning of unleavened bread. Not saying it's wrong to take unleavened bread, but the meaning is not in the unleavenedness. The meaning is in the brokenness as his body would be broken. That's the, the main focus there. That the Exodus, and as the Exodus brought the old covenant, so Jesus' death would bring the new covenant, Right, Jeremiah 31, 31. The old covenant was always meant to point to a new covenant. This, this restored relationship with God, inter, not through external sacrifices, but through an internal change of new hearts that, that Jesus says would happen through his blood, again, in Matthew, for the forgiveness of sins. And it's amazing that there's not even a mention of the lamb. Right, The lamb is, is, is absent from the meal. There, there's some commentators that would say it's absent. He, he makes no mention of the lamb on the table because he is the lamb in person. The focus is not the lamb on the table. The focus is the lamb um, who is Jesus Christ. As John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there is that connection with the wine being his That's true. So there's a little connection there. But yeah, that's, that's, the, represent, that's the physical representation now of the wine being his blood. Yeah, so the wine is his blood. And, and it's his blood... Not, not necessarily the focus on, on it's shed, but it's shed, it's the, it's the blood of the new covenant, right? It's this blood that, that it, the picture is not necessarily of, of, 
Yes, it's death, but it's death in the way that, that when Israel was bef- at Mount Sinai and animals died and their blood was put on Israel as a sign of this covenant with them and God that, that, that they could have because of the sacrifice that allowed them to have that covenant with God. In the same way, he is doing that as the perfect sacrifice for those who would trust in him for, for their forgiveness of their sins. So that's, that's is pulling that symbolism, as you're right, out of there. So he's, he's taking that Passover and he's remaking it. He's, he's, not, he's, he's to focus that it's about him and what he's about to do on the cross. And then look at verse 19. Back there in verse 19, he says that as he, as he, uh, as he do this, this is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. So that this was to be done um, as a, a, a symbolism of Christ. He did that there. And then just as the Exodus was to remember God's redemption in Egypt, so that the church is to do this in remembrance of, of God's redemption at the cross and, his resur- and Jesus' resurrection. And we see, we'll see later in Acts, uh, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 11 that the church did obey this. And they quote these words and they say, we do, they do, this, in, do this in remembrance of Christ. And so we see what happens is that, that in the same way that the, that the old covenant was marking out the people of God by the Passover, the new covenant marks out the people of God by the Lord's Supper, right? It's a community meal that the, the Passover identified, here's what, here are the people of God, the ones that celebrate the Passover. The new covenant, here's how you identify the people of God, those who partake together at the Lord's Supper, the symbol of, of redemption, and so these are, these are symbols. It's symbolic symbols. And I, I want to get back to, I don't want to do too much on the community aspect because I want to talk about that next week. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 really pulls this idea of, of the it, it, communion is not just about me and God. It's about me and the church together in, in our relationship with God. Well, uh, so I'm not going to go too much in there. What I want to focus on is that Jesus is using these theological symbols of the Passover elements in the same way that God had initiated those in the Old Testament. They're symbols. It's like when we get married, right? Is that we have a wedding ring. It's a symbol, right? This ring really legally and practically in a lot of ways doesn't do much, right? In fact, funny story is when we're up there and when we got married, Amanda went to go put that ring on my finger and I'd gained a little weight, I guess. Um, and she's kind of like, yeah. And so we are at the airport waiting for my flight. And it was like, it was, it was like, it was, it was not feeling, it was it colored. It wasn't colored, was it? But it was, it was like losing circulation, right? And so we, we took it off and Amanda's like, I'm not losing this thing. So she wore it around her neck, uh, on, on her necklace. And very first stop on our honeymoon, we're like, we're picking up a ring. Uh, so um, this actually, I fit in it now. So praise God for that. But, um, but it's, it's. It's the idea that it's a symbol that as I wear it on my finger, that's what we often say at weddings, right? It would be reminding me of the covenant I made and the covenant she made to me. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a reminder of those things. And, 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 and that, I think, when we consider the context, it helps us some of the confusion about the Lord's Supper. And so let's, let's take, now let's step back from the biblical context. Let's talk about some of the, 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 the confusion and some theological issue. One of the theological issues um, is what does, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? What is actually going on with the Lord's Supper? When Jesus says, this is my body, there are some different understandings of what that means. All right, there's some different understandings. Um, uh, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, then, then the, the Roman Catholic understanding is called transubstantiation. 
transubstantiation. I'll just call it the Roman Catholic understanding. Um, and, and that's the understanding that when the priest consecrates the elements, there is an actual metaphysical change that takes place with the bread and, and, and the fruit of the vine, typically wine there. Right? The, the, the bread, the, the Roman Catholic Church would say, actually metaphysically becomes the flesh of Jesus. And the wine actually and metaphysically becomes his blood. So you, so the Roman Catholics would say, when you take the, the communion, you are actually and literally in every sense of the word partaking of Jesus. You're actually really eating his flesh and you're really drinking his blood. Because they said, well, because it says this is my body. Which, you know, so if, if you've ever noticed, uh, when, when I worked up at uh, Calvin Crest, there's, you know, they did, they did mass on the last day when there's a Catholic group that came up and the priest would have to eat all the leftovers. Right? Because otherwise, you're just leaving Jesus' body laying around. Right? So, so the, the priest has to, has to finish off what the, what, you know, if they have too many. So I guess you have to make sure you don't count too many. Um, and, and, but here's the problem with that, Right? Is that how we should interpret what Jesus is saying here? This is where that, that word literal, how literal do you take the word literal, right? Literal, it has to mean, in, it always has to mean in context, always, right? So the Roman Catholics say, we're, we're taking the Bible literally. You're not taking it literally. Well, we are taking it literally because we're understanding the context. First of all, Jesus often uses that word is or am to, to, to mean, literally means taking it as a metaphor, right? When Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus is not an herbal tree and neither are you, right? In, in, in that sense, right? We are not metaphysically changed into branches when we become followers of Christ, right? And so there's a, there's a misunderstanding of that. And the biggest misunderstanding is the context of Passover, Passover was a using elements as a symbolic picture. Um, there are also pro- other problems with the Roman Catholic understanding is that they would understand the mass to be an actual sacrificial act. Jesus, this actually gets turned into Jesus' body and blood so that Jesus would be, in a way, sacrificed again so that we can receive more grace that we need, right? Because that initial trust in Christ isn't enough. We need more and more grace through the sacraments to kind of overtake our 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 um our sin, so that the problem is that that that's a denial of the gospel. Yeah. What's kind of weird to me is like that we we kind of focus on the symbolic misunderstanding. Yeah. What it's not true. In which way? It's not. It's not what they say is happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the, the, if you tasted that and you tasted flesh, there's a little bit different uh, chewiness yeah, in your mouth. Yeah. 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 It's still not happening. Yeah. Nothing wrong here. Yeah. And so there's some, some, just some, some, yeah, that's true. Even, even more obvious problem there. And the other problem with that is that it it comes from an influence of how they think about that. Actually, especially in, in the Reformation times, that the priests would not let the congregation, would not the lady partake of the cup because in case they might spill it. Because if it's Jesus' blood, they would literally be spilling Jesus' blood and wasting Jesus' blood. So like, we're not going to let you take the cup. You can take the bread but we're not going to let you take the cup. Only the priest gets to take the cup. So there's an exclusion from the laity from the full participation. Uh, and that's one of Luther, was also a, a huge problem for Luther when he understood the priesthood of all believers. Yeah. So if they're so literal with the Bible, why aren't they still celebrating Passover as well and all the other Jewish feasts if they're so literal? Because if they're 
Yeah, I would say the Roman Catholic Church has some other issues when they think about Israel as well. But yes, yeah, there's some... <laughs> yeah, so so there's some problems. Um, let let's look let's look at second second law. So Luther Luther said, okay, there's some problems there. That this is not actually transforming metaphysically into flesh and blood. But he's saying, but but he didn't want to stray t- it's too far from that view. So he had something called con- we call consubstantiation, as where he says it's not metaphysically changed. But Jesus did say, this is my body. So if it's not metaphysically changed, it has to be his body somehow. And so what Luther would explain is that, that um, the, blood, the body and blood of Jesus somehow, because Jesus is omnipresent, specially intermixes with the elements. And he would say, in, with, and under the bread. So he, Luther would describe that the bread you take in, in the Lord's Supper like a sponge, and Jesus' presence is kind of specially with that bread, so that when you take that bread, you are actually eating his body, not in a metaphysical way, but in the spiritual way where Jesus is really specially omnipresent with that bread and that, that, that cup at that time. Um, he rejected the other issues for the Roman Catholic Church, but he wanted to hold to saying, we have to, we have to understand, if Jesus said this is, then it must be that way somehow. Again, the problem is he misunderstood the, the, the aspect of the symbolism coming from Passover, that this was a symbolic picture, a symbolic picture. Um, thirdly, uh, there's the Calvin's Reformed understanding. So Calvin... If you read in his institutes, he would say, no, the bread and the cup don't magically or spiritually become anything. There's nothing about the, the, the bread or the cup actually contains Jesus' physical presence. It's not that, that you know, it's, it's some, some aspect that way. Um, that's not what is means when he says, this is my body. But what Calvin would say is that this spiritual experience happens when you take the communion. That the church would be, in a way, spiritually transported into communion with Jesus when they take these elements. Calvin describes it that as in a spiritual sense, it's as if spiritually, when you take the Lord's Supper, God takes the church and brings the church up to heaven so that it's almost like you're communing with Jesus when you're participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, and and so, you get, so you get a closer relationship with Jesus when you take the Lord's Supper than, than, than at other parts of the Christian life. It's like this new, renewed vitality through this extra close time with Jesus. That's what Calvin would describe in the Institutes. Um, I, I hate to, to disagree with Calvin. Um, I, I, I do that very tentatively, but I, I think he's wrong there. And I think that, that, that most of the history of church has looked at that as well. Um, because there's nothing, nothing that Jesus inst- talks about here. There's nothing in 1 Corinthians that talk about a closer communion. It's not do this so you can be closer to me. Right? That, that, there's nothing of a picture in that. In, in fact, 1 Corinthians 11.26, which we'll look at next week, says, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Not so that you, as long as you do this, then you get to be closer with me. It's that you, this is a proclamation. This is a, a remembrance. This is a symbol, right? Matthew 20, 28, 28, 20 says, Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? It's not saying, yeah, I really wasn't with you, but once we took communion, now, now we're good. I mean, it's a weird way of thinking about his omnipresence. So I, I think, you know, we look at Calvin as, 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 logical, as understanding is off, a little bit off there. Uh, I think that our church would follow another Protestant reformer uh, named Zwingli, which is probably the broad Protestant understanding today, is that when Jesus said, this is my body, as we looked at the Passover symbolism, it's symbolic, right? Just as the elements of the Passover meal were symbolic to remember 
God and his character and his redemption, so the Lord suffers to cause us to remember Christ and his character and his redemption. That Jesus is spiritually present everywhere. There's nothing extra special about the bread or the cup that makes it more special presence of Jesus. It's not a mystical experience. But it's, it's sometimes when you say it's a symbol or a sign, we can say, oh, it's just a sign. Ah, it's just a stop sign. California that means you don't have to really stop, right? Um, but we need to remember that, that, that the Bible used symbols and signs for important reasons. These were things that God wanted us to, to think on and to meditate on, to remember and to influence us. There is value to the symbol and there's value to the sign. There's a reason why Jesus would say, do this in remembrance of me, that we should be looking backwards to the already redemption that Christ accomplished. He, his body was broken, so mine wouldn't be. That, that he offers this new covenant my blo- and his blood uh, for me. And it's a point to, it points forward to the not yet completion that, that he will not celebrate this. And, and Pastor Bob has pointed that out a lot until, the, until he has in the kingdom of God in the way that the communion is a victory meal. The Lord's Supper is a victory meal. It's a, it's a foretaste of what we're going to experience in heaven. And, the, and, then, and then as well, the Lord's Supper is a time when we commune to the Lord, with the Lord and his people through what he has done and will do. So as I said, we're going to talk next week in 1 Corinthians that, that the Lord's Supper is not just about me and God, me focusing on, on, on my sin and Christ's work and all that's true, but it's also a time to focus as we do this together as, as God's people. So questions, comments, thoughts as we uh, kind of looked at, at that context this morning. Do you have the reference of where in the Institutes that is? <sighs> there's, there's a chapter, I want to say book, th- well... I can't remember which, uh, I get confused which book is book. Um, it's near the latter half, latter third maybe. Um, and he has a whole chapter on, um, on the Lord's Supper. Um, he has one on baptism where he makes his argument for, for paedo baptism and then he'll have a whole other chapter on, on Lord's Supper. Yeah. Other, uh, other questions, comments? You're talking about Christ being in the bread and in the wine. Yeah. And then we also talk about the Holy Spirit and Christ being in us. Yeah. Are they the same kind of relationship? I don't know. That would be Luther who would be talking about that. I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't read as much Luther, so I don't know. Um, I would say that idea of, of um, union with Christ, I think that uh, – actually, I'm reading a book on it right now. It's been really good. But um, I think that it, there's different aspects. But I would say this. It, it's, it's not a physical Right, it's not a physical that aspect. Right, it's not a, this kind of physical. You know that the focus on is that, that Jesus is physically with that somehow. Right, and that that's kind of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a relationship. There's an empowering. There's a communion. There's a also some. That, that, there's a lot that Paul ties into our our relationship and the fact that I am counted, reckoned with Christ, and He is reckoned with me. So there's that sort of of of, of relationship because of justification and imputation. And so I, Paul, I think, would use that in in in, in, a, in a, 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 a a kind of diverse way. So yeah, yeah. 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 But do you feel like there's a sense in which a lot of the churches that kind of create this communion experience? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Walk up one at a time and each take. Yeah. 
That's interesting. I, I didn't think about that, but it's, it's probably true. I don't think they're doing that because... I don't think they're doing it because, well, here's what Calvin said. and I, I don't think it's a theological necessarily. Um, I think it's probably more pragmatic. Um, but it is true. And, and I think that... Um, I think the problem with that maybe is, is less that they're ignoring the symbolism here is of the symbol. I think the problem of that is they're ignoring 1 Corinthians when 1 Corinthians would say that it's a, it's a corporate celebration, not an individual celebration. And that, I think, is the issue. That is, is, that, is, is, is that issue, not... not that, that's probably the critique I'd have of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, 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 one, it's an emotional experience, um, but I think that you could do that with a, a, a lot of things. And, and I, you know, and, 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 you know I, I guess I lean back on John Edwards in there, too, is, is Edwards would say that when we understand the truth, that, that emotion, emotion should, you know, should come from truth. And I think there's enough truth there that it can be emotional. We don't have to manufacture it. Right? We don't have to manufacture extra emotion with the communion because when we understand all that it is and when the Spirit would apply the word in truth to our hearts, that there should be... S- there should, we, I don't think any of us should be stoic, right? Okay, here's another communion, right? That there should be something of a, but but it's it's not. It doesn't have to be manufactured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll get I, I'll get that in just a second for it. Yeah, give, give me, let me pray, and then I'll get you. I have to look it up on my phone. So. <laughs> All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today, and we do love you and praise you. We thank you for what you've done. We, we pray, Lord, that even though it's not a, a Sunday where we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, that we would remember who you are and what you've done for us. That, that is why we are what we are, Lord, is because of, 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 of what you've done for us. We do love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.